Welcome along to this week's edition of The Snap. We uh, hope to be able to provide some kind of distraction for you from the rest of the news that's going on in the world outside. Uh, Kian Fahey is here as our glamorous assistant. Kian, how are you? Glamorous assistant? I drive the show. What are you talking about? Uh-huh. How are you getting on? I'm doing grand. I'm, I'm a little bit um, a little bit out of the way down here, so there's not as much disruption to us because there's not so many people around, so it's a little bit easier. Okay, so you didn't have cabin fever just yet? No, well, I basically work from home all the time, so people are asking me for tips, so it's kind of useful for me. It's no, there's no real difference to me, I guess. It's a lot of disruption to some people, but to me, it's a lot much change. Um, one of the uh, ancillary tangents of all this is that this may well end up being the best scouted draft class in the history of American football because nobody has anything to do but sit at home and, uh, and grind tape. Well, this is the thing about the NFL and the landscape of the NFL. Um, like the NFL is called the year-round sport, the 12-month sport that the off-season or that the season never ends. But the reality is, it has the shortest season. So the NFL goes from August to February. Like there's no actual football happening right now. There's no necessary football happening right now. The bigger story in the NFL is the CBA. Like the the only things that's being disrupted right now are uh, the pro days and work private workouts. The combine was done before anything happened, so that was all looked after. But you have to understand the combine, or sorry, not combine, the pro days and the private workouts are just excessive. Like there's no need for them really. The NFL people will talk about them and competitive advantages and all this sort of stuff, and they will say this is a massive disruption, but it's not. It, it, the NFL draft every single year, people make awful picks, people make terrible picks, people make great picks, and it's a little bit of a lottery. And they've had all this very incisive, like overly incisive. Uh, amount of uh, amount of access to players and amount of uh, way of measuring players, and they still haven't been great at drafting. So it doesn't really change anything. The NFL has chosen to make the off season this massive spectacle. So the only thing that's really going to change is that the NFL draft won't be a live event, live events the way it is. It won't have massive crowds, but they can still do everything they need to do between now and August, so long as the coronavirus doesn't hold until August until September. The NFL should be fine. Um, I, I don't know if you're a fan of the redrafting as a piece, uh, as a think piece. Um, PFF did the 2017 draft recently, and just to bear out your point about it being a bit of a lottery, um, this is the draft that the Cleveland Browns picked Miles Garrett. So obviously they pass up Patrick Mahomes, they pass up um, Deshaun Watson in, in that draft. It's also the draft that um, the Chicago Bears traded up to get Mitchell Trubisky and passed over Deshaun Watson and passed over Patrick Mahomes. You're like, okay. So uh, I actually enjoy these pieces because they kind of give you an opportunity to look back and see just how random this is. George Kittle was drafted in the fifth round in that draft. Everybody passed him up again and again and again and again and again. And so the, the whole notion that any of these teams are so brilliantly run um, that they're expert and that they've got, got the draft nailed is, is really a fallacy. They're picking Patrick Mahomes where they did was a brilliant piece of genius by the Kansas City Chiefs and then having the environment within which to put him to prosper where he didn't have to work in that first year in the full glare of the spotlight and his, his, um, his maturity was allowed to develop off-Broadway. A million different things go into somebody being successful in this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why those redraft pieces, while they can be very good and very interesting, they need to be done well. Because you have to, you can't just say the Chicago Bears passed some Patrick Mahomes and should have taken Patrick Mahomes. And if they took Patrick Mahomes, they'd have a superstar quarterback. No, they probably wouldn't because Patrick Mahomes would have gone through a scheme change, would have started as a rookie, would have played under John Fox. 
that's completely different to playing under Andy Reid and getting to sit for a year and develop for a year. So, like, Patrick Mahomes needed that. So as long as you're doing these redraft pieces, you have to talk about those things. I actually quite like redraft pieces when you're talking about uh, the talent balance of the league. So if you want to, like, redraft the whole rosters, anyone who's played Madden will understand the fantasy draft and how that works. And I've actually, something I've talked about with Irish rugby because of Leinster's dominance, I like them when you can have, uh, you put, put all the team's players into a group and then you can kind of get an idea of who has the best roster and who has the pecking order of the best players. Necessarily looking back on previous drafts, I don't think it works particularly well. But that's also the beauty of this. You're drafting incomplete players. So you can get Antonio Brown in the sixth round. You, like Antonio Brown didn't have, like obviously now you will look back and say he fell to the sixth round because of character problems. He did not. He, he was not considered a character problem. He might have been, but that's not the reason he went in the sixth round. He went in the sixth round because people didn't think he was particularly good. And he had to develop for two years on the Steelers, or not in the practice squad, but on the Steelers special teams and on the end of the roster. Him and Emmanuel Sanders used to compete for the same roster spot. A couple of years later, Emmanuel Sanders, one of the best receivers in the league. Antonio Brown was one of the best receivers in the league until very recently. So you can find guys at the end. They're more than likely not going to, but you will have guys move around all the time. Yeah, I, I, the other thing that is good to do is just to go back and revisit how bad teams are at picking. So a reminder of that draft uh, very quickly. Miles Garrett goes number one. Miles Garrett's an excellent player and could be a, a franchise-defining player in the right setup. So I, I'm not sure that you would um, slaughter the Cleveland Browns for picking him if they'd actually managed to find a, a quarterback, but they didn't. The second pick was Mitchell Trubisky. He was the first quarterback off the, the board, picked by the Chicago Bears, who traded up to get him, who gave up draft capital. The San Francisco 49ers picked Solomon Thomas, who's like, at best, a role player. The Jacksonville Jaguars, with the fourth pick in the 2017 draft, picked Leonard Fournette. Uh, and the fifth pick, Tennessee Titans, Corey Davis. Teams don't know diddly when it comes to drafting. Hey, it's not just teams. I don't either. Like, uh, the rest of us don't. Because in that draft, I watched Mitchell Trubisky and I watched him make throw after throw after throw. And I said, there's no chance I'm taking a defensive end over this guy. Because he could fit the ball into any window. He could make any throw you want them to make. He could move. He could run. He could throw under pressure. He could throw uh, on the move. He could do everything you want him to do. The knocks on Trubisky at the time where he hadn't played for more than a year. He, he had lost his job to a guy who didn't make the league at all previously. And... His skill set hadn't been rounded out and proven. So you look at Trubisky, he had a great rookie year, outstanding in John Fox's system because he didn't have to do anything mentally. He kind of had very specific routes to throw to, very specific options to rely on. Matt Nagy came in and said, hey, you need to figure out where to go with the ball more often. And he's been a complete disaster. But if you take Trubisky away from the Bears and put him into uh, an offense like, let's say, the Titans offense that Ryan Tannehill is just in where it's play-action heavy, it's specific routes all the time, he'd probably be a much better quarterback than he is now. But you have to go back now and look at Miles Garrett. Miles Garrett was the right pick over and over again. He was incredible generational talent as a defensive end. And then one crazy thing happens and he's considered a, a problem and he's considered a bad player, I guess. Well, maybe not a bad player, but a problem at least. Yeah, I think that um, in the end, they're going to be happy with that pick and um, more than likely he's going to have a good season next year because he's a really good player and they might actually get some uh, talent actually, around him. Sure. Just because just you mentioned that draft, like Solomon Thomas was such a popular draft pick. Everyone thought he was going to be good, and he's terrible. There's one guy, um, Trent Richardson, years ago, was a superstar running back coming out of Alabama. And there's like an online community of people who watch the draft and evaluate the draft. And there was one guy who said, Trent Richardson, don't really like him. He's, he's slow through the hole. He's not great through the hole. And he got slaughtered because everyone in the league, or everyone covering the league, everyone in the NFL, everyone outside the NFL were saying, Trent Richardson, next superstar, next greatest running back, going to be a Hall of Famer, Jim Brown, whatever we want to call him. 
And this one guy was right, and everyone else was wrong. He saw what was going on. He saw what was going on. Everyone else saw what was, what was right. So everyone, what everyone else saw was wrong. And he got run out of what he was doing, and he doesn't actually cover football anymore because people gave him so much abuse for being different from the crowd. Right, Jesus, that's terrible. Um, Tommy, you, you've actually been spending a bit of time grinding some tape, um, given that there's not very much else to do at the moment. Uh, in terms of this draft, who have you been looking at? Uh, recently, I like probably the most interesting one is Henry Ruggs, and everyone knows him because at the draft he ran a four-two-seven or a four-two-eight, whichever it was. Not that there's much difference between those two, but basically what that means is he has superstar speed. He can run past anyone. He'll he'll make the best NFL athletes look slow. And whenever he, someone like that props up in the offseason, actually, when I talk about bad drafting, Darius Hayward Bay and Ted Ginn, two top ten picks as wide receivers, went that high because they were very very fast on a straight line. Al Davis picked one, and is it Jeff Ireland picked the other? And both of those were generally poor decision makers. And those guys haven't turned out to be what you expect them to be, but both have stayed in the league for more than 10 years because of their speed, and they've refined their skill sets a little bit. The interesting thing with Ruggs is he has incredible speed, but he also has a lot of quality in his route running. He uses his upper body, which is a rare thing for young wide receivers, because they talk about route running. Everyone watches videos of like Chad Johnson's footwork and they watch Stevie Johnson and they want to make all the hard cuts and they want to make guys look foolish. They want to do what Stefan Diggs does and make guys fall over and create wide open running lanes and quite right open space to catch the ball. And those are the plays that everyone loves. But And actually, then the other part of that is Odell type of plays where you're catching the ball, one-handed catches, spectacular catches. That's what we kind of value at, wide receiver, at the wide receiver position. But to be a great wide receiver, you have to be able to use your upper body in your routes. Because defensive backs in the NFL, especially a guy like Richard Sherman, they're just going to lean on you and put their weight on you. They're not going to push you in defensive pass interference and get a penalty, but they're going to guide you in a certain direction that they want you to go. They're going to create leverage. So if you're not using your hands properly, and oftentimes you're using your elbow, because if you use your hands and extend your hands away from you, you'll get called for an offensive pass interference. If you're not using your hands or using your upper body to create that separation, you're going to struggle a lot. And that's why wide receiver is actually the second most difficult position to transition to the NFL in after quarterback, because you have to be able to diagnose coverages, read coverages, and you have to be able to run routes against guys who understand how to cover, which is very rare in college. So Ruggs already has an ability to run a very good curl route, run a very good in-breaking route, very good short routes that he can build off of, because defensive backs are going to be terrified of him. Pressing, pressing him at the line of scrimmage is going to be one of the toughest tasks in the league. Where is he being mocked to go at the moment? Uh, top 15, top 16, top 20. He's That kind of speed propels you up draft courts, and when I was watching him, one of the things I thought to myself was, this is the kind of guy one team could fall in love with in the top 10 and just take him. Because they'll see the same thing that happened with Hayward, Hayward Bay, same thing that happened with Ted Ginn. They will see all of the upside, all of the potential, and not consider the potential downfalls. But I actually wouldn't be that mad about a team doing that with this guy because you can already see a foundation for how he's going to be successful in the NFL. So you're also actually falling for him. As, as you watch the video, you're like, <laughs> oh, oh, this guy, he's so great. I'm falling, I'm, I'm falling for a lot of guys this year. This is a really good draft. Right, that's very unusual for you. Normally you're, you get your sceptical hat on. It's like, ah, this draft, it's overrated. Who else are you falling for? I think the benefit of that is not being on Twitter. I'm not paying attention to extreme opinions anymore that I have to fight back against. Um, Mickey Beckman is a guy I just watched. He's uh, an offensive tackle who is... 
Reminds me a little bit of Trent Williams. So the interesting thing about Mickey Beckton, actually we're coming back to a similar uh, a similar point here. Greg Robinson was taken by the Rams years and years ago. Greg Robinson was super athlete, freak athlete, who played left tackle for Auburn. But he played left tackle for Auburn at a time when Auburn only ran the ball and ran a very, very different offense. So essentially what would happen on most plays would Greg Robinson would move from his left tackle spot where he started and move inside and block inside. So he was essentially playing left guard. He wasn't moving outside and dealing with a Von Miller coming off the edge. He wasn't going outside and trying to counteract uh, Cameron Wake's speed rush. He was never moving backwards. He was always moving forwards and always the protagonist and the aggressor. So for for Robinson in that time, you he came out as the superstar. Everyone loved him because of his physical traits and his upside. The Rams took him and he became a bust because he couldn't figure out how to get into his pass sets and make his footwork work properly. And there's a little bit of that concern with Beckton. He played in the Louisville offense, which is what Lamar Jackson was in two years ago. It's not as aggressive as that Auburn offense. There were opportunities for him to drop into a pass set and show his footwork and show his hands. But he really, really needs to learn how to use his upper body. He really needs to learn how to get into the right position in pass sets. So he's going to come into the league and probably struggle as a pass blocker because he's a, he's a complete unknown in that sense. But then you flip it over to the other side. As a run blocker, it's Trent Williams. It's it's a guy who can advance upfield and destroy linebackers in space. If if defensive backs come near him, they'll be picked up and thrown to the side like they're ragdolls. It don't even matter. You've seen him grab defensive ends, guys who are six foot four and one hundred and fifteen kg, one hundred and ten kg, catch them with one arm and throw them sideways. You've seen him pull across the formation and make blocks. You've seen him pull outside and blow guys up, and you've seen him run and advance upfield and turn in space. This guy ran a five-one at the combine, which is a crazy number for someone who is six foot seven and three hundred and forty-six pounds, which is like I don't know, one hundred and thirty kg maybe. So where's he going? Do you think? Oh, he's top ten. The, the last draft I looked at, he was fifth overall. Uh, him and a guy called Tristan Wirfs. Tristan Wirfs is a, a very interesting player because the most valued spot ever since Joe Theismann's leg snapped because of Lawrence Taylor, the most valuable spot in the offensive line has been considered the left tackle most quarterbacks are right-handed so they look right so the left side are the it's a little bit of an antiquated idea at this stage but generally the best offensive linemen play on the left side and Beckton or not Beckton sorry Trishan Wirfs plays on the right side but he's so so good he's so talented he's got such an all-around skill set that guys are looking past that that they don't care he plays on the left side and the team he played for had a decent left tackle as well so it's not like he couldn't play left tackle. It's that they had their best offensive line out there by keeping him on the right side. So if you have him, he's more of a rounded prospect than Beckton, but Beckton is probably his more upside because of the physical tools that are there. It is, it is funny just how important these drafts are. If you, if you get a good draft, you can go from being completely useless to being not quite a contender, but very, very close to being a contender really quickly. If you look at how well, for example, the Colts have drafted in recent years, they're in a position where they've got a, a fairly decent talent pool and a massive amount of cap space that they're set up for a run. It, it's going to be very interesting to see now when free agency happens if these teams start making the types of investments that you would expect them to make. The whole point of hoarding cap space over a number of seasons is that you, you begin to build a team with a mix of your own internal uh, talent from the draft and then you add on, you sprinkle in some, uh, some decent free agents. Um, well, it's fascinating. It's fascinating because one individual draft can have a massive impact on your team. And the Russell Wilson draft, where Bobby Wagner went in the second round, Bruce Irvin went in the first round, Russell Wilson went in the third round, and as a KJ Wright, who went in the fifth round. Like, that's the foundation of a Super Bowl team. That's the foundation of a great, great team. And, and they had Eric Thomas in the first round, Richard Sherman in the fourth round. So they built that team out. But then you can also have teams that are great who don't have great draft passes ever. 
like they'll just build over time or they'll find guys in free agency and find guys in trade. So the draft, in a funny way, it can be the very most important thing and it can be completely irrelevant at the same time. Yeah. Which is what the NFL has kind of beautifully done here and with the way they project this thing as a great event. It can get you out of hell if you're in it. If, you, if, you get, if, you, if you're lucky in one of those seasons where the right players fall to you and you appreciate that they're the right players for your environment. Um, so, I, like, for example, I'm actually interested to see for the first time in a long time what Washington are, are going to do. They have a coach who I think is going to be fun to watch and they have definitely some talent on that defence and it looks like they're going to have a significant amount of draft capital. There is some talk, and I, I, I guess this is just trying to puff up the value of their pick, that they're not happy with the quarterback that they took last year, so maybe they might be in for Tua. All of that stuff is actually kind of interesting. I think talking about things that I get wrong, we can talk about how that Washington defense was one I thought was going to be really, really good this year, and it turned out to be terrible. But the reason for that was you had the individual talent there, like Deron Payne at nose tackle is one of the best players in the league, in my opinion. Jonathan Allen at defensive end, there a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of overall quality. They added Landon Collins from the Giants. So and then you give Ron Rivera that group of players and you give him the opportunity to add Chase Young at defensive end if they do that that defense becomes very, very interesting because Ron Rivera knows what he's doing. He's bringing a stability to Washington that hasn't been there previously. But that's if they take Chase Young. It's the assumption is that they want Chase Young, but they're also trying to play the trade market, obviously, and they're also showing interest in the quarterback. So what makes this interesting, and the reason you bring up the quarterback from last year, he didn't play well. Dwayne Haskins wasn't good as a rookie, and we just saw Josh Rosen get replaced immediately when a new regime came in. And I feel like this could be the same thing. Ron Rivera, new regime, came in this year, and I don't think Washington while they were the second worst team in the league technically last year, I don't think they're actually the second worst team in the league. I think if you added a quarterback, and obviously Tua is not going to be a great player from day one because he's got to come back from the hip, but if you added a better quarterback or better quality quarterback to that team, they might take a sudden jump very quickly. But Rivera might look at it then and go, hey, maybe we'll just take Chase Young and look for a quarterback next year or look in free agency for a quarterback. There are so many different options that you can't peg anyone down to what they're going to do. But yeah, I think Washington are actually a really, really interesting team so long as Bruce Allen is kept away from everything. Well, they could end up with Cam Newton. That's the thing. Like He obviously loves Cam Newton and who knows what Cam is going to be like, what, what variation of Cam we get back. But like, there is a possibility that with this rest that Cam has had over the last year and a half, that he gets well. There's also a possibility he's completely finished. So um, who knows what's going to and happen. That, and of course, you could take Cam, have him for half a season, you know, the flames out and then Tua comes in. So it could be a perfect situation regardless. Yeah, yeah. Okay, just a, a reminder to everybody out there, for all you American football fans, you need to subscribe to our newsletter. It's the OTB Club Gridiron. Content from the Snap, podcasts, fixtures, stats and videos about all things Gridiron are now hitting mailboxes all around Ireland. You can subscribe at offtheball.com forward slash gridiron and enjoy all that OTB Club Gridiron has to offer. Some very exciting news for those of you who are already members and for those of you who signed up now, you're going to be able to avail of a code that will have advanced release ticket sales for the Aer Lingus College Football Classic. Advanced sales is from next Wednesday the 18th up to general sale release on Friday the 20th. If you're not a member of OTB Club Gridiron, get over to offtheball.com forward slash Club Gridiron to subscribe. Um, Let's move on and talk about free agency because at the moment the NFL have said that they're not denying the start or they're not delaying the start of the league year. So what are we at half past one essentially on Friday afternoon and this is the latest available information that we have. The start of the league year will happen. Um, there was some talk that they would be concerned about the optics of players signing multi-million dollar contracts at the time of the coronavirus ripping through um, the United States. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's actually something that is going to stop them. Um, 
I don't know if if they actually want to be out and have this as part of the news cycle while everybody else is sitting watching rising death tolls. There's, there's, a, there's definitely an element of having something to distract people and uh, talking about fantasy football essentially where players are going to be playing next season in the vacuum of not having anything to do might not be the worst thing for everybody to do. So um, as it stands, this is going to, going to happen. What do you expect and, and what are the, the big movers and what are the big kind of um, dominoes that have to fall first? I'd be very surprised if the NFL does anything like that. Uh, the, the bigger threat to the NFL, like the threat is probably the wrong word to use right now, but the bigger uh, relative topic to the NFL is the CBA. And I would, before I thought, say anything about it, is like the preface this by pointing everyone to a Colleen Kane article in the Chicago Tribune, which goes through all the details of the CBA very, very well. And the discussions are basically the same as they always have been. It's players want more revenue and they don't want to make the season longer. The NFL owners, 30, like, the NFL owners can talk about players signing million dollar contracts and what that is PR wise, but these are billionaires fighting over small dollars. So, and they, like, these guys don't care about general people. They care about their product and what they're putting out there and making money. That's how they became as much as they've become. So, the NFL has a, is, 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 is focused on getting live events, getting everything on TV. It's why David the Combine is now an event. It's why free agency is put where it is put. It's why the draft is such an event. So they want as many uh, things to put on camera as possible. So they want a 17th regular season game and an extra round of playoff games. And the current CBA offers raises in minimum, uh, minimum pay for players at the bottom of the rosters. Uh, in, in turn, they want to get the 17th regular season game by 2022, I believe, and extra playoff games by 2024. So that all sounds like, hey, we'll give you more money to play more games, and that all sounds very good, but you have to consider the actual details of this. The players are still not getting a 50-50 revenue share, which is what they should get at the very least. You have to look at um, the idea that this is best for players at the bottom of the roster. You'll go from making 450 grand in a year to 610 grand in a year. That's a general number there. It's not the exact number. But the, the idea of that is, hey, players at the bottom of rosters, we'll get more money, so we're going to vote for the CBA. The problem with that is that those contracts aren't guaranteed, so it's not actually real money. You'll be on a roster for a day, so that means you'll get a 17th of that paycheck or maybe an 18th of that paycheck if the season is longer. So you get that for one year. That's not setting your life up for the rest of your life. You work for this for six or seven years. That's not going to change your life at all. So you've got guys like Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, and all these bigger names coming out against it. You've got a guy like Ryan Fitzpatrick who's saying, hey, you should, we should all sign this. But you have to consider the players involved. The players involved, in, in terms of Rodgers and Russell Wilson, they are looking at the long term more than the guy like Ryan Fitzpatrick is because Ryan Fitzpatrick probably wants to avoid a lockout more than anything else because he needs to play again before his career is over. But there's a lot, a lot of different moving things. This is a very, I, I really enjoyed that Colleen Kane article and point people to that because she's an independent person who's taken the actual documents and just gone through them. The problem with taking the news from reporters and taking news from where it comes to the NFL is this is actually a big argument right now. So you've got even Damaris Smith, who is the leader of the Players Association, who is causing all sorts of issues in terms of uh, the negotiations, because players don't trust him now. And there's a, actually, is it Russell O'Kung has a, a filed a grievance with the NFLPA right now over labor, over labor dispute. So there's just so much going on and you can't trust where the information is coming from because one side is going to give you what they want you to say. The other side is going to give you what they want you to say. And it's going to be a, a bit of a mess and sifting through it all isn't going to be easy to do until the actual CBA is signed. So what do fans need to understand? Franchise tags, transition tags uh, will be, uh, the deadline is Monday. 
the new league year is Monday. The free agent news will start to trickle out on Monday, and Wednesday is when the actual signings will happen. So that's the move forward. That's the way we're going forward. But there's also a lot going on that you have to sift through. Yeah, just um, on, on the coronavirus aspect of this, Mike Florio was reported yesterday that they are considering delaying the start of the league year. This did happen before in 2011 when there was a, a labour issue, but that was, again, specifically about a labour issue at that point. So we'll wait and see exactly if, um, if it does go ahead. It, it, when when it happens, it's probably unlikely to have that much of an impact on what's actually going to happen. As you said, the, whether or not the two tags are available to teams will decide if um, teams like Tampa, for example, could potentially tag the quarterback and the uh, pass rusher when actually what they're really going to do if they only have one tag is tag the pass rusher and let Jameis uh, head out. Similarly with Dallas, they have a couple of players that they would like to tag, but ultimately it's going to be Dak Prescott who gets tagged, surely. Well, I think Bruce Arians made it clear that they're not going to tag James Winston regardless at the end of the season when he said you can't win with that quarterback pretty much openly to everyone. What's behind so, door number two? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the Dallas situation, like if you want to talk more specific to teams, the Dallas situation is what frustrates me more than anything else because their reasoning for not signing free agents last year and the year before was they had to keep their guys. And no reports are coming out that Amari Cooper is going to be let hit the open market because they can't afford Amari Cooper. You have $78 million in cap space right now. You haven't paid outside free agents for the last few years. So that means you haven't been maximizing the quality on your team to compete and make the playoffs like they didn't do last year. And now you're trying to shortchange your own players who you're supposedly saving that money for? This is a Jerry Jones 101 of running the team when you say all you care about is winning and not actually running the team that way. Yes, Stephen Jones runs the team right now, but anyone who doesn't think Jerry has a massive influence in that franchise is aware of the birds because that's absolutely true. So... You can look at the Cowboys as an individual representation of this, but I guess the overall, like the macro issue and the reason they'll talk about delaying the league here is more about cap room and, and cap space. So you get the extra tags in case you have an uncapped year and, and all that kind of changes how everything works because the last time they had an uncapped year, it wasn't actually uncapped because there was like an agreement behind the scenes that Washington and Dallas got in trouble for paying players, uh, giving them certain contracts that would allow them to save money in later years when the cap was back. And it's all a lot of kind of legal and mumbo-jumbo nonsense that kind of takes away from the fun of the game, to be honest, because you start talking about contracts and the, the writing in the contracts and the deals that are made rather than the actual game on the, on the field. Yeah, it does allow you to see which teams are very well run and which teams don't end up getting themselves in these types of difficulties and the teams who always leave themselves a little bit of wiggle room and who don't really stress too much about the cap. And we always come back to the Patriots and the Ravens, for example, always knowing exactly what's what and how they... Um, they're the teams who, funnily enough, always end up with uh, more compensatory picks. Dak Prescott's going to be playing for the Dallas Cowboys next season, long and short of it, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I wrote uh, a free agency primer, I guess, this week on Off the Ball, and like, I, it's, it's a difficult thing to do, look forward to free agency when you don't know who's been tagged in that, because you want to talk about the top free agents, but the top free agents might not even hit the market. I put Dak there just because we need to talk about Dak as, and his value and understand the way these negotiations are going, because... The framing of that is, hey, Dak turned down $33 million. Isn't this insane for Dak Prescott? Not really when you consider Jared Goff gets paid $33.5 million. When you consider Russell Wilson gets 35 and he's at the top of the market, and every time a new quarterback comes up, they reset the market. Like Guys like Matthew Stafford, Derek Carr, Kirk Cousins have all had record-setting deals. Jimmy Garoppolo had barely played before he got his record-setting deal. So Dak Prescott's market value, regardless of what we think of him as a quarterback, is $40 million. And that's what he's got to hold out for. Ben Roethlisberger is 38, coming off of a massive injury, off of playing very poorly for a couple of years, and he's gotten huge money as well. So he's the third highest paid quarterback in the league, as far as I know. So 
Dak's value is massive. It's there. The Cowboys are doing what they did to Ezekiel last year. They're trying to get as little money in him as possible. And then at the very end, they will likely concede and pay him as much as they can. If Dak did hit the open market, it would be fascinating because no one at that age hits the market like that. No quarterback does. Like the most interesting, or not the most interesting, but kind of a standout free agent this year is Kareem Hunt. He's a 25-year-old free agent in the prime of his career because of off-field issues that caused him to lose his job in Kansas City. He played in Cleveland last year. Now he's a free agent. All of the stuff has kind of been forgotten, so he can get a really good deal. You generally don't see someone at 25 in their prime hitting free agency, and that's why talking about the best free agents is always a challenge. Yeah, okay. Um, this, I think I have your list. It's Dak Prescott, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Ngakwe, Brandon Scherf, Clowney, Ryan Tannehill, Chris Jones, Shaquille Barrett, and so this is ESPN, sorry, this is ESPN's. Chris Jones, uh, Shaquille Barrett, and Hunter Henry. Chris Jones, obviously, is going to get tagged. Um, um, but after that... Well, they look at Hunter Henry's expected to as well, and that's another guy I wrote about just because of how good he is and how he's an interesting free agent to talk about. Yeah, I, I look, Henry's one of those players who has been explosive at times, and then, so last season, for example, um, injured twice, two significant portions of the season he was injured, had one amazing game where I think it was two touchdowns and 128 yards and eight receptions. And then towards the end of the season when he came back from injury, he was catching a ball here and a ball there. And it was like, almost like he'd had a big row with the quarterback or something. I feel like if you know that exact stat line, you have definitely had him on your fantasy team. Um, Dynasty. I, there you go. So... Hunter Henry, to me, is has an interesting career because he came into the league as a, just this phenomenal, like, a well-rounded tight end who could play as a, a mismatch receiver, who could line up in the slot, who could stretch the field vertically, who could block a little bit as well. And he, for the first couple of years, he played behind Antonio Gates and he looked really, really good whenever he got opportunities. But he had never come into that full-time role, that big, big role. And then he tore his ACL at the worst possible time because he couldn't establish himself as a high-quality player. And then last year, he has his own issues, but he also is playing in an offense with Philip Rivers, who could no longer really throw the ball. So, and he's also got Keenan Allen right next to him, which is something most uh, players don't have to deal with. Keenan Allen is one of the best players in the league, and he's someone who's always going to get most of the targets on the offense he's in. So Henry's production has never been where it should be to reflect his quality. Like, the Chargers should franchise tag him, but if he hits the open market, he could get one of the better deals for any tight end in the league. Because a team like the the, uh, the Green Bay Packers, who just released Jimmy Graham, they now have $28 million in cap space. If you can pay 9 or 10 per year over whatever amount of years to Hunter Henry, you've addressed your biggest issue, a lack of a second option behind Devontae Adams. You've got a guy who can play in the slot or play out wide when you want to put your blocking tight ends on the field and Jay Sternberger or Mercedes Lewis, whoever they wind up keeping out of all that group. So... Henry is a very versatile fit. He fits in every offense in the league, and he's going to elevate anyone he plays with. He's the kind of guy, because he plays in Los Angeles, because he's been hurt, because he doesn't have the production, the casual fans or people who aren't massively into fantasy football won't know him. But he's also the guy who can turn up next year and be a breakup player. Like Shaq Barrett, who you mentioned, who became a pass-rushing superstar this year, who was kind of an unknown last year. Yeah, I definitely saw some people analyze Barrett's um, per-snap pressure rates and um, because he was uh, on the Broncos, who had this amazing pass rushers ahead of him, he was actually always going to be successful. They took a, a one-year flyer on him, and now they're going to end up, uh, probably they're going to end up tagging him and paying through the nose and giving him lots of money. But there's probably a bunch of players around the league who just haven't been given the opportunity at the team they're at at the moment who are primed to explode. So it'll be interesting to see if anybody does make it there. I just want to remind everybody, American Football and Off the Ball is brought to you by the Aer Lingus Classic between Notre Dame and Navy. Go to collegefootballireland.com to sign up for the very latest updates. The latest update 
which we're announcing uh, is that tickets for Notre Dame and Navy will finally be on public sale on the 20th of March. That's a week away. Tickets to the 2016 game obviously sold out in four hours. So make sure you head over to collegefootballireland.com for the chance to get early bird access to game tickets. Or you can also subscribe to uh, our uh, weekly or to our email, which is um, offtheball.com forward slash clubgridiron. And we'll be giving you advanced ticket details on that. Let's talk Tom Brady. Where do you think he ends up? Patriots. I think I think after all of this, it's going to just wind up going back to the Patriots. Um, I, I it, it's a it's a confusing one because for so much of his career, he has been oh, there's nothing to talk about, and we're just going to reset the contract every year like we always do. And then all this year, it feels like he's leaving. But once you reach that actual point of leaving, it's a very different thing, right? Like it, we can talk about it as much as he will fit with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which is what I wrote about and how he wants to be back in California with San Francisco or with Los Angeles Chargers. And we can talk about all these things, but actually getting to it actually happening, it doesn't feel like it's going to happen. It doesn't feel like it's going to be real. Um, the other reason for that is the Patriots haven't shown any inclination of doing anything else at quarterback, which, like, the, I looked at Jordan Love the last two weeks as uh, the third quarterback in this draft. Uh, sorry, he's not the third quarterback. There's another quarterback in between whose name is Casey right now. Herbert, actually, is the yeah. name. Justin Herbert. Justin Herbert is a terrible quarterback to me based on his college uh, projection. But Jordan Love is a very interesting quarterback. But he's also a quarterback who has a lot of talent who makes too many mistakes. Like, Bill Belichick isn't going to say, right, we don't have Tom Brady. We have to trade up and get Jordan Love. That's going to be our guy this year. So he's not going to deal with that at this stage of his career with his team set the way they're set. He will maybe find a veteran in free agency, but by now you think he would have been connected to someone. Maybe it's because it's the Patriots and before they signed Darrell Rivas, the, or before they got Darrell Rivas, they weren't linked to him. Before they got Stephon Gilmore, they weren't linked to him. Maybe it's just that privacy that comes from that organization. But we haven't seen a clear connection yet. Like, what are they going to do? Sign Philip Rivers? I doubt it. Ryan Tannehill looks like he's going to be tagged. Marcus Mariota is next in line, I guess. James Winston is next in line. I just can't see that the Patriots are going to do. I think there's talk of them paying Brady $13 million or being willing to pay Brady $13 million. It will probably need to be a little bit more than that, probably 33 and 34, and it's probably a bad decision. It's probably a bad deal for them, but it's probably the best that they've got, the best option that they have. And Belichick, like, I, I just don't, I don't think this narrative of Belichick wants to prove he can do it without Brady and Brady wants to prove he can do it without Belichick. I just don't think there's anything really to it. Maybe there is and I'm completely wrong. Just at the, the point of the make or break right now, I just don't think he's going to leave. Yeah, Bill Simmons tweeted um, that he thinks uh, Brady's been filming a documentary this offseason and then last week Brady announced that he'd set up a production company in Hollywood. So yeah. like, uh, there's a, every chance they made a deal months ago. They know exactly what's going to happen. This is all, nobody knows nothing. It's just, uh, look, I'm trying to get this stuff going for after my career finishes. We've got the deal signed and um, I, I don't know. It just it doesn't make any sense. And and that Super Bowl advert tells you very clearly that Brady is a fan of attention. Like there, you can't claim that he's not looking for a bit of media attention or a bit of a, a bit of his value when you put out an advert at the Super Bowl, biggest time of the year, talking about how you're going to disappear and then changing, being the big switch up on everyone. You can't say that you're a good private or you just want to keep yourself and do that advert. Why do you think the San Francisco 49ers allow themselves to be dragged into this conversation? Is that just a kick up the arse for Jimmy Garoppolo? I think it's not you like unless they actually sign Brady. I don't think it's relevant. I think they just don't care about that. I think the bigger kick up kick up the arse for Garoppolo was Kyle Shanahan after the Super Bowl and talking about like we can talk about the way it was or if what, what if it was overblown his comments and his reaction his 
his demeanor or talking about his quarterback, but that was it felt real. It felt like his actual reaction to the situation. Maybe it's just because they lost the game and he, he wasn't really in the mood of talking up his guy, but it didn't feel like they were solving him with the way they've called the game, plays in that game as well. I I have not bought into the 49ers as a, as a fit for Brady. And I, I don't know if we talked about this or if I talked about it elsewhere, but it's very, very difficult to see 42-year-old Brady, who's very clearly in physical decline, playing under center and executing all these difficult handoffs. Look, it's not something we talk about as a quarterback. We talk about throwing the ball. We talk about reading defenses. But in Kyle Shanahan's offense, you have to be very, very quick at getting the ball to your, uh, to your running back, running outside left tackle, running outside right tackle. You have to be able to get around and turn around and run these bootleg actions all the time. Kyle Shannon isn't going to say, hey, Tom Brady, come in, you run the offense you want to run. Kyle Shannon is going to run his offense because mm. he's been in the situations before where he knows his offense works and he knows how far he can get with his offense. And he's built his whole career in that offense. He's not going to change that. So unless John Lynch or someone above them says, hey, we need Brady because Brady's the biggest superstar ever and we need, uh, we need the, I guess you don't need the attention, you don't need the ticket sales, but maybe you want the, the reputation of having Tom Brady in your franchise. That's the only way I can see the 49ers actually wanting him because I don't think he improves them. Like, as much as I criticize Jimmy Garoppolo, is Brady at 42 a better quarterback than Jimmy Garoppolo? I don't think so. No, I, I would actually tend to agree with you. It doesn't make that much sense, and it doesn't make that much sense that they haven't come out and said, we're happy with our quarterback. That's the bit that is just like, maybe there's a keep him on his toes, make him work really hard in the offseason, now feeling sorry for himself after what happened in the Super Bowl. I just wanted to ask a, a, a macro question. We had Sean McVeigh be the hottest offensive mind in football ever hype machine for the all the build-up to the Super Bowl and then the Super Bowl collapse. And then it was like, oh, actually, it was never him because he was really only the disciple of Kyle Shanahan. And then, obviously, we had Shanahan, who was on the verge of winning a Super Bowl against the best quarterback that we've seen um, ever, hype machine. Uh, but in that case, the hype might be justified. Is there just a possibility that we're overrating the value of these offensive minds? I, I don't think that's the... <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> I don't think that's the right way of putting it. I think what happens is we have an oversimplification. So if we, I'm going to go in a completely different direction here, but if we talk about Liverpool and Atletico Madrid this week, Liverpool were, like, they dominated the 180 minutes or 180 minutes plus of that tie, and they lost that game. You, in part, you would say because of luck, and luck is a, is a small issue in that game, but it's affirmative. And I, I did hear your conversation with Kenny Gunningham and how that went, and I kind of agreed with both of you in the, in the end because... If you go back to the summer, Liverpool sold uh, Simon Mignolet because he wanted to leave, and you brought in Adrienne, who was a very cheap option, and a guy who came off free agent pile, and you put him in your starting lineup. And that very, very small piece destroys the whole team because he makes that mistake, and he's made those mistakes all season long. And this is kind of a roundabout way of getting to it, but the smallest piece on a team can derail everything else as the positive. And we have a tendency, and I don't know if it's media, if it's American media, if it's worldwide media, if it's just people who just talk sports all the time. We have a tendency to take the result and put that in front of the process. And we talk about Sean McVay and we talk about what happened and what we have to look at what's wrong and what's wrong with Jurgen Klopp's team and what's wrong with Sean McVay's team and are they not actually as good as what they are. I think the, real, the reality of what Sean McVay and the same with Jurgen Klopp and I put those two together because the way they are, incredibly good at their jobs and they have kind of similar personalities and how they drive teams and with their leadership they are both exceptionally good what happens is just because you didn't win at that moment it means we talk about we devalue your quality we devalue your intelligence these offensive coordinators in shanahan and mcveigh and they're head coaches they're offensive coordinators but these minds they are incredible 
but they can only set guys up for success. They can't go out and actually do these things. So when you're evaluating a play caller or you're evaluating a coach, you have to you have to look exactly at what they're doing, the specifics of what they're doing, and they're still doing those things. If you want to criticize McVeigh, the one big criticism you have of him is he paid Jared Goff, and you you went all in on Jared Goff, and he's just not good enough. Well, so that's in a way. Let me rephrase the question. Do they believe their own hype too much? Did, did, does Shanahan believe that he is the most important part of that offense, even though he's not actually on the team, and so therefore on the field, he has less influence when that ball is snapped than he thinks he does? It's the same with McVeigh paying Jared Goff. It's like, well, I, I can win with this guy even when I put my left arm behind my back by paying him all the money that I could otherwise spend on my offensive line. You know, It's not just spending the money on... It's uh, on Goff. It's also spending the money on Gurley, who they must have known had a, a dodgy knee. So he's got two arms tied behind his back, and still they're confident, if not arrogant enough, to go. I'm gonna. I'm going to see this through. Actually, I think it's true, but I think it's true of all NFL coaches and all the one percenter coaches who get to the top of sports. And I think the. We can bring this back to the draft and to the scouting and to this time of year, and that's why you have decision makers who are separate from coaches. Because coaches, let, let, Mickey Beckton, who I talked about previously, the offensive tackle, he's going to be beloved by every single coach in the league because they will see all the things they can't coach. They can't coach six foot seven. They can't coach strength. They can't coach his run blocking ability. And they'll say, "I can fix his footwork. I can fix how his hands work. I can make him the best he can be because I'm me. I'm a great coach. I know exactly what I'm doing." Bill O'Brien becomes the GM of the Houston Texans, and suddenly the Texans are wildly overpaying for everyone. Why? Because Bill O'Brien looks at players and goes, oh, I can fix him. And then he's calling, uh, is it Dante Foreman, his running back? He caught his, uh, his running back because he had one bad practice. It was like an overreaction as a coach because you're involved in this emotionally. And that's kind of the balance you have to find. Bill Belichick is the only guy who was, actually, sorry, Andy Reid has as well. Bill Belichick and Andy Reid and maybe Pete Carroll, but John Schneider is there as well. Pete Carroll's a heavy influence in Seattle. They're the only guys who have been able to run the whole organization from coaching to decision-making to uh, evaluation in the offseason and do it without being too emotionally invested or believing in themselves too much. Having an understanding and a self-awareness of who you are is really, really important. It's very difficult for us on the outside to look in. One thing I really, really appreciated with Mike Zimmer two years ago when their offense wasn't working, and it was very clear it wasn't Mike Zimmer's fault, it was the quarterback's fault, their offense wasn't working. His first instinct was, am I the problem? Do I need to figure out what's going on? Do I need to change? Which is the kind of thing you hear from a coach and you think, yeah, he's going to be all right. He's going to figure this out. And they pretty much have figured it out from a coaching point of view in Minnesota. With Kyle Shanahan and with Sean McVay, they're actually two very, very different coordinators because McVay has a, had a very short time before he became the Rams head coach. He worked with Kirk Cousins. He worked with, I think he was there for Robert Griffin. He might not have been. I think they, he they might have been together. on Shanahan's staff. Yeah. Yeah. So either way, he was only in Washington and he had a little bit of a connection to Gruden and he's had a little bit going back. But it's not like Shanahan, where Shanahan worked as an offensive coordinator in in Atlanta, in Washington, in Cleveland, and has seen these awful quarterbacks. These guys work in different ways. So he's been in so many different experiences. Shanahan understands, I think, I think from my own point of view, I could be completely wrong on this. I think he understands exactly what input and what effect he has and understands what he can cover for and what he can't cover for, which is why you saw in the Super Bowl, he didn't really open up his offense because he had a recognition of what he was working with at quarterback. Okay, that's interesting. And look, it's obviously a point that we can come back to again as the offseason. Um, anything massive before we go here in terms of uh, one of those big surprise issues that might happen in free agency? 
Well, I think the one thing to to think about always at this time of the year, and only because it happened a couple of years ago, was that Sam Bradford and Nick Foles kind of started it off. Free agency is not only the start of free agency, it's the start of the league year. So that means league transactions can now come true. So you mentioned there that you the foreigners haven't said anything about their quarterback for the last couple of months. That's also because they haven't had to have any media access over the last couple of months. Any media they've done over recent times would have been by choice, except for the combine, where it's a very short thing. And if you're at the owners' meetings, you'll get something there as well. But that means the league year is starting right now. So now the transactions can go through, which means trades can happen. So other things that haven't been reported on, we could get these sudden movements of trades. And the one thing you've got to watch for is the Carolina Panthers are supposedly tank- tanking this year, possibly tanking this year. I personally don't think they will. I, I, I think they have too much talent on the roster. I know they've lost Kookie, they've lost Cam Newton, but I think they'll talk themselves into being a mid-table team or whatever. But you have a lot of teams and the Patriots, of course, are in transition. A lot of teams in position to make trades. So that's what we've got to look forward to. And maybe next week we have some really fun moves to talk about. Yeah, so maybe Christian McCaffrey's playing somewhere else next year. That would be wild. Kian, <laughs> good stuff. Thanks very much for joining us and I hope you uh, stay well. You too, thanks. That's uh, Kim Fahey with us uh, here on The Snap every week. A reminder that you need to get on and subscribe to our newsletter, OTB Club Gridiron, offtheball.com forward slash Club Gridiron. You can enjoy all that OTB Club Gridiron has to offer, which is podcasts, pictures, stats, videos, um, content from The Snap and podcasts. We're going to be updating all of the uh, grassroots scene from American Football Ireland here on uh, OTB Club Gridiron as well. The big news is, though, you're going to be available able to avail of a code that will have advanced release ticket sales for the Erlingus College Football Classic. So if you want to guarantee yourself tickets, the best place to be able to get the advanced sale option is from next Wednesday before they go on general release on uh, Friday the 20th. Uh, if you're not a member of OTB Club Gridiron, get over to offtheball.com forward slash Club Gridiron to subscribe. And American Football and Off the Ball is brought to you by the Erlingus College Football Classic between Notre Dame and Navy. We'll see you next week. Go easy.